Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. I'm really excited about today's episode where we will be discussing the wellness industrial complex. Before we get started, it's important for me to take some accountability. I was a complete sucker for wellness during a huge part of my 20s, and there are elements of it that I still engage with today. I rarely miss my daily skincare routine and love a high-energy studio-based workout class. I also think it's important to recognize that there are definitely elements of wellness that are well-intentioned and that can truly help our well-being. I've made plenty of mistakes in the past in terms of how I've upheld the wellness industry and its gurus. And over the past few years, I guess I've kind of undergone a process of unlearning and I'm still trying to wade through the wellness murky waters that are highly confusing. This is where Rena Raphael comes in. Rena Raphael is a journalist who specializes in health, wellness, and tech. She was the health and wellness features writer for Fast Company and has also contributed to the New York Times, LA Times, CBS, and NBC News, and was previously senior producer and lifestyle editor at The Today Show. In her new book, The Gospel of Wellness, Rena balances the good with the bad, taking a deep nuanced dive into this $4.4 trillion industry and how it's a direct result of gender inequalities and structural sexism within medicine and society. She is here to help us tear down the false idols that have taken hold and ultimately shows us how we might shape a better future for the movement and for our well-being. There is lots in this book about community and true, true self-love and self-care in a way that isn't commodified. And I think you will love it. Right. Here is our conversation. I hope you enjoy this chat with Rena Raphael. Rena, I am so excited to chat with you today. I inhaled your book over the holiday season and then pestered you and your publicist in order to arrange this conversation because I think my listeners are going to gain a lot from your book. So let us begin by perhaps you explaining to us your personal relationship with wellness and with the wellness industry, as I think this will be really helpful in setting the scene for my listeners who might have had a similar experience to you. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to be here and thank you for your interest in the book. And yeah, in terms of my story, I guess I could say that I'm a former wellness junkie. I tried every single trend, every new product. I mean, I was going to like electric shock, hit workouts, um, underwater, like soul cycle. I drank all the natural wine. I mean, you name it, I tried it. I kind of treated myself like a little lab rat. And the reason I did that is because, 
you know, a couple years ago, I just didn't feel good. I felt overwhelmed. I felt like I couldn't keep up with modern life. I wasn't sleeping well. I didn't feel like I was eating well. I was exhausted all the time. And here came an industry that kind of dangled solutions, you know, dangled this glimmer of hope. And because I became so into wellness, I actually moved to LA, which is like ground zero for wellness. And at the time I was working for a business magazine called Fast Company. And more and more, my pitches started to reflect my metamorphosis until at one point, the magazine let me cover this industry full time. So that means I got access to everyone from Gwyneth Paltrow, who I've interviewed several times, to like biohacking guru Dave Asprey, the heads of meditation companies, um, you name it, I interviewed them. And two things happened. Number one, I started realizing that this investment into wellness wasn't exactly paying off in the sense that, you know, I got into clean eating. That gave me disordered eating. I was consumed with uh, my Fitbit. If I didn't get enough steps, then I would punish myself. I had to buy all this stuff. You know, I constantly felt guilty if I wasn't working on my health. I was doing what a lot of people do these days, which is essentially fetishizing their health. And then on the other side, on the work side, the more I had access to these founders and gurus, and the more I fact-checked their claims with researchers and scientists, the more I realized that a lot of these products and protocols have very little, if any, scientific evidence. I kind of put those two together and I was like, okay, what is going on here? Because I don't think I'm getting any better. And I had to realize that the wellness industry is unwell. And what really spurred the book is that I wanted to understand more than just, you know, kind of the growth of this industry, why so many women feel unwell. What exactly is going on? And there's not one answer. It's multifactorial as to why so many people feel drawn to this industry. And I think what you've touched upon there, and it's something you write about in the book, is how we are really wanting to take advice from celebrities and wellness influencers more than we are qualified professionals. And I do think this has changed over the past few years, but initially I just wanted to try all these fitness classes because that's what fitness influencers were telling me to do. Why do you think they play such a powerful and key role in pushing wellness onto us and making us spend money on it? Well, there are a couple of different reasons. To start, we tend to trust the names we already recognize. If you see a headline with some you know, scientists you've never heard of, you're just going to ignore it. But you see names like Gwyneth Paltrow or Naomi Watts, and you're going to pause and be like, hey, what are they doing? Oh, wait, Kate Moss has a new wellness line. What is she doing? And then you're going to read it. The second part is the proliferation of social media. So a lot of these celebrities, a lot of these sort of wellness influencers are posting several times a day on social media. Now compare that to, say, your relationship with your doctor or scientist or researchers. Those are busy professionals who do not have time to be on social media all day long, you know, assembling a perfect acai bowl in a kitchen the size of a small European country. They just don't. And more than that, these influencers leave their DMs open for you to contact them, you know, so you get to start a personal relationship with them. You think back to 20 years ago when there might have been some like diet guru who wrote a book and that book basically waited by your bedside table for you to have 20 minutes before bed for you to read their book. It's a different game now. Now you have people you know, who basically are in your lives several times a day and they 
position it so perfectly. I mean, so much of wellness, unfortunately, is tied to this aspirational lifestyle. And I'm not just talking about a life supposedly free of aging and sickness and stress. I'm also talking about like beauty and and thinness, not to mention you know, good virtues. We associate, you know, being thin and being healthy with being better, better than other people. So there's a lot that's tied into it that has to do with who celebrities are and what they look like. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is that a lot of them are just much better at messaging. You know, I heard from so many women who felt, and I have two chapters on this, who felt really unheard or ignored or dismissed by the medical industry for various reasons, which we can get into later. And a lot of these celebrities and influencers really speak their language. They tell them the words they most long to hear, which is, I hear you. And they understand that, you know, everyone wants to feel good and that's just becoming harder and harder in modern life. A lot feels out of control. Um, A poorly constructed uh, medical system, tech overload, politics, you know, you name it. And they say, hey, I'm here to listen to you. And that's really, really powerful. And I think that's actually something that I wish the medical industry did a little bit more of. But unfortunately, they're not set up that way. You know, you go to a doctor's office and you have 15 minutes, you know, every six months. It's it's just a completely different ballgame. Something that I think the book does so, so brilliantly is what you mentioned then. You know, so much of the research that we have today is based on men. It's not based on women. So a lot of us aren't really getting the advice that we need. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, this part of your book? Because I just think it is, it's unbelievable. My, honestly, my jaw was on the floor when I was reading it. Yeah. And just another point, just um, because medicine is flawed and medicine doesn't always have the answers doesn't mean that the wellness industry does. A lot of these celebrities and gurus use really aggressive and misleading marketing tactics. You know, like they'll promise you if you take their supplement or if you buy their gummy, you're definitely going to feel better. You know, versus your doctor, who I hope would be more ethical and say, well, you have a 30% chance of getting better, but it's going to require this work. It's a little more complex. I mean, people don't want that reality check. They kind of want that fantasy. They want to buy into the quick fix, which unfortunately a lot of these gurus sell. In terms of women's medical research, it's been underfunded for a long time. I mean, women in the U.S. weren't included in clinical trials until 1993. So it's not that we're a couple of years behind. It's that we're decades behind men. That's obviously changing, but there's still many complaints that women feel in the doctor's office, and they're right. So, you know, women will go to the doctor's office and complain about a certain chronic condition, let's say. They're faced with shrugged shoulders. The doctor will say, I don't have to tell you. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. And the reason that they they say that is because there hasn't been enough research into chronic conditions, autoimmune disorders, many things that affect more women than men. And so again, when they can't find the answers within medicine, oftentimes they're in so much pain and they're so frustrated that out of desperation, they will go to the wellness industry. And the wellness industry preys on those vulnerabilities. And so oftentimes they will say, oh, there's not a cure for this chronic conditions. We have the cure and it involves buying the supplement. 
it usually always ladders up to buying something, and it's usually something that really doesn't have randomized clinical trials attesting to its efficacy. But I have a lot of sympathy for these women because it's really hard to go through that. And not only that, it's not just following the guru. Oftentimes, they'll enter their orbit, and they kind of have a community of other people. And so this is where it becomes really, really hard to sometimes convince them out of it because they don't want to leave. They have a new identity. They have a new community. It's really, really hard to get them out of that, even if it's not science-based. Do you think this is one of the reasons why wellness has women in a chokehold more than men? Because we feel so let down in a multitude of other ways. I mean, it's one reason. I mean, throughout the entire book, I talk about why women have been drawn to wellness, but also preyed upon by the wellness industry. There's not one reason. Medicine is one of them. But if you're to believe the polls, women are also way more stressed than men. Look at, you know, especially uh, young moms. I mean, they're working full-time jobs, and they're usually also subject to the double shift, which means that they're taking care of the kids more, they're doing more of the household chores, so they're absolutely exhausted. I mean, in terms of medicine, they usually have more interactions with the medical industry starting at even a younger age, so that means that if they're interacting more with medicine, that means they have a higher likelihood of sort of, you know, gathering bad incidents. So there's a number of reasons why. Also, the wellness industry kind of merges with other sort of industries that have become wellness. Um, We can get into what the wellness industry even is in a bit. But, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that is basically targeting women. So you'll see the diet industry has seeped into the wellness industry, the beauty industry. And there's all these modern societal pressures on women to look and be a certain way, you know. And so this industry has become hyper-consumerist, but also filled with productivity pressures and perfectionist pressures that are usually lodged against women. I heard so many women tell me, wow, it's not enough that I have to like eat like a forest rabbit and make all these beautiful meals for nutritious meals for my family. But now I also have to make sure that I'm super zen and I'm always calm and I'm never stressed out. That's been going on with women for the longest time where they're not allowed to show anger or frustration. You know, those things are sort of lodged against women. Another example is if you go to men's spaces versus, you know, women's co-working spaces or clubs. Men's ones are all about like drinking whiskey, you know, playing, you know, foosball, doing all this fun stuff. And then you look at women's ones and it's like, do yoga, take this nutrition class, take this medication class. Women are often targeted for self-improvement. And this goes back even before the wellness industry. Even self-help books usually targeted women more than men. So those are just some examples of how this industry is really, really kind of gunning for women. Something that I'm quite enamored by is your comparison between wellness and fashion. As before reading your book, I definitely hadn't thought of wellness as a fashion trend. Please could you explain this in a bit more depth? Yeah. I mean, here in the US, I remember when I first got into wellness, like maybe eight or nine years ago, it was all about bone broth. Then it was kombucha. Then it was celery juice. Then it was chlorophyll water. Then it was functional elixirs. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. And it's funny when you remind people like, hey, remember you used to be like super into bone broth? They're like, oh yeah. You know, they forget that we kind of treat wellness like fashion fads. And 
Part of it is that, you know, this industry is trying to sell you something. And also the media does its part by basically doing all these clickbait headlines. I mean, they need to feed the beast and there's no money to be made in telling people like, remember, just eat your fruits and vegetables and try to get moderate exercise. So they're always pushing out headlines. But it's even more than that. I think there's a lot of psychology involved here. And this is why in the book I talk so much about how the wellness industry is really based in belief. And so people buy this product and they put all this hope into it. Like, I'm going to buy this supplement or I'm going to buy this juice and it's going to make me feel all better. And then it doesn't. And so they go and put their faith in the next thing. They just keep roving and rovering to the next best thing. And they never seem to realize, like, there's barely any science here, you know. And if it does work, oftentimes it's, you know, the effect of a placebo. So that's kind of what's happening. But again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, it's also because wellness is tied to an aspirational lifestyle. So it means something when you're spotted with a green juice and you're wearing certain leggings and you're frequenting a certain gym. And that's part of it, too. You know, I talk about in the book how I used to be a fashion and beauty reporter. All the brand marketers and publicists who used to work for the fashion industry and even the alcohol industry now pitch me wellness brands. They all moved over to the hottest new industry and they're using the same manipulative tactics trying to make women feel like they need to buy this new thing. And not only do they need to buy this new thing, this thing is usually really pricey and that it means something when they buy it. In the same way that if you wear a certain brand, it means something about you, right? That you're wealthy, you're beautiful, you're cool. It's the same thing in a different outfit. Yeah, it's all these little signifiers. That is absolutely fascinating. It makes me really sad. It should because um, health shouldn't be treated like fashion. Yeah, completely. Something that I found really interesting reading your book was making the link between clean eating and clean beauty. In the UK, at least, it felt like the clean eating space kind of skyrocketed about maybe coming up to 10 years ago now. And then a lot of very qualified dietitians and nutritionists stepped in and did really, really important work to say, hey, listen, this isn't necessarily all that healthy. Let's try and have more of a rational conversation. Now, as you talk about in your chapter, is my face wash trying to kill me? Clean beauty, it seems to be everywhere. It's the thing that all celebrities are hopping on board with. And it seems like there's a new ingredient that we need to be using or that we shouldn't be using every single week. I, for one, find it incredibly overwhelming. I'm wondering, having researched uh, the clean beauty industry, what did your learning and unlearning teach you? And did it change your own beauty cupboard and kind of put it in a whole new light after doing this research? Oh, yeah. I mean, so first of all, I bought into clean beauty just because I saw it everywhere. I mean, you don't question things that you see posted everywhere. And I'm not just talking about on Instagram with social media influencers. It was in all my women's magazines. So I just took it as a given. And I mean, I even made clean beauty companies companies of the year for my business magazine. Okay. We appreciate the transparency there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, throughout the book, I talk about media's role throughout all of this, um, including my own. And You know, I remember when I started this book, I checked back those original articles and I realized not one of them checked with a toxicologist or a cosmetic scientist. 
oftentimes they would maybe check with a dermatologist, but a dermatologist is not necessarily skilled in toxicology. So, I mean, this is a sort of tactic that's done a lot by the wellness industry. Well, they'll get an expert to sign off on something, but not an expert in the field that we're actually talking about. But yeah, in terms of clean beauty, a lot of the claims are extremely exaggerated. And more than that, it's a lot of fear mongering. It's a lot of, if you use these ingredients, you know, you are going to get cancer and you're going to mess up your health system. And then when you look at the actual studies, when you actually speak to the experts, they tell you a completely different story. You know, I note in the book that I called a toxicologist and cosmetic scientist, and I would ask about it, and they'd say, yeah, most of clean beauty is marketing. I didn't like what I heard, and I called another, same thing. You know, I spoke to over 12 of them. They all said the same thing. It's marketing. So when you look into the studies, you see that a lot of them were based on mice. And even if they were based on mice, they basically had a very, very, very small effect on people, if any effect. A lot of it was not proven to be detrimental to your health. But they take that science and they kind of manipulate it to terrify you, you know? It's the example of if you put, you know, sort of a teaspoon of something in a pool, assuming that that's going to kill you. They focus so much on the ingredient and not the amount of the ingredient. And as toxicologists told me, it's really the dose that makes the poison, right? It's sort of like vaccine-hesitant people talking about the fact that there's formaldehyde in certain vaccines. There's also formaldehyde in a pear, but it's not going to kill you. It's not going to do anything. It just gets flushed out by your body. It doesn't do anything. So you really have to figure out the dose. But unfortunately, fear mongering really, really works. Fear sells. And that's why this industry keeps doing it. And I spoke to other people who work for beauty companies who told me off the record, yeah, our company doesn't believe in clean beauty at all. But hey, that's what's doing well at Sephora. So we got to jump on the bandwagon. Wow. I'm giving a very simplified generalization of this industry. You know, I have an entire chapter dedicated to it. Obviously, there is something to be said about consumer product safety. So I'm not saying all consumer product safety initiatives are bunk. That's not it. I'm saying that the majority of the claims and the fear mongering within clean beauty are just so exaggerated and really, really harmful. Another thing that I just find so, 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 so frustrating is I find myself watching, you know, skincare routines with, you know, name the A-lister in Hollywood. And none of them are being upfront about the amount of Botox that they've had, the amount of uh, surgical procedures, the amount of ridiculously expensive facials and like the time that goes into their skin. And so we're all trying to live up to these ridiculous standards that are so much more than just, you know, the latest product that they're selling. Yeah, totally. Not to mention, I mean, the biggest one is just genetics. And I think a lot of people assume that if they consume what Gwyneth Paltrow consumes, they'll look like her. And I assure you that Gwyneth Paltrow looks the way she looks, not because of some supplements, but because, you know, she has good genes. She's just gorgeous. So yeah, there there is definitely a reason why the beautiful and toned and well-respected celebrities are the ones who are, are fronting these brands because it works. That's just kind of human nature. And that's not anything new. Industries have been doing that for the longest time. I mean, the beauty industry was always using models and celebrities. And like I said, now they've just taken those tactics and applied it to health. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Something that I really sat with when I was reading your book was how many of us, including myself, have replaced attendance at a place of worship with going to a spin class or a yoga class. And I absolutely loved how you wrote about how it was your synagogue that was there for you in times of need, not your fitness studio. So yeah, there are a lot of people who refer to their gym as church, and they almost kind of meet it quite literally. And I think that's also why uh, my book is titled The Gospel of Wellness. It is tongue-in-cheek, essentially saying that wellness is offering basically a regulatory framework telling people how to live. And so it's providing guidance, meaning, purpose, and even community, right? And so I really take issue with a lot of the marketing around certain gyms, obviously not all gyms, that talk about how they're going to be your tribe, they're going to be your community, they're going to be your family. But as you just mentioned, good luck going to your gym and telling them that you lost your job. And if there's a death in the family, I assure you your instructor is not going to come over with a casserole. And, you know, one moment that's really sort of ingrained in my mind is that at one point I was doing a story Uh, for my magazine about a gym in Manhattan that was just for pregnant women. I went to go try it out and speak with a woman and it was in this beautiful, gorgeous, like pink, soft lit loft in Soho. And when I interviewed the women, they all told me the same thing. They had been kicked out by their gym for being pregnant. Their instructors were terrified of basically having a pregnant woman in their class and taking accountability for them. And they said, well, there goes all my friends and all the people I knew. I got kicked out, so I guess I got to go here. And it was obviously more than that. They obviously loved the idea of being with other um, pregnant women, and that's part of it too. They were like, you know, I would love to see my friends, but they're all so busy. I need a set place where I can just go and see people and hopefully learn from them. And that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of this is tied into what's going on with modern society. Why do people feel so lonely? Why are they going to gyms for their community? Why don't we have time to see one another? That's kind of what that chapter uh, gets into as well. So yeah, you know, gyms are not, you know, the solution. And a lot of this is, again, dependent on your financial ability or your physical ability. And that's really, really tough. As you write about in the book, this is very much a systemic issue and only the privileged few can access the wellness industry in the way that we're talking about it in this conversation. Something that I think is quite interesting is how you talk about how it's not necessarily all bad. There could be some trickle down impacts from the wellness industry into, you know, 
infiltrating everyone's lives. But can we talk a little bit more about these kind of systemic barriers that are preventing the majority of folks from being able to access wellness and the systemic issues more widely? Yeah, I think that if many groups of people are not able to have the time or the resources um, or the access to do things like move, um, eat more fruits and vegetables, get proper sleep, that's an issue. And instead of looking at systemic issues of why they can't do that, instead, this industry is very individual focus. It's always telling people the onus is on you to take care of it. And this is actually why I get so offended with how self-care is messaged these days. It's always about what you need to do to make yourself better. It's never looking at the root issues of why you feel so overwhelmed. Um, I give the example of workplace wellness programs, where if you go to HR and say, this is too much work, Uh, I'm working every night, every weekend, I'm getting pinged at all hours, they'll say, but have you tried yoga? Instead of them saying, oh, I need to take accountability. So there's kind of this masquerade going on within wellness where it tells people that it's really up to them to take care of everything. But then we don't always give all the people the tools to pursue it. So, you know, you'll see all these influencers talking about how it's just a choice to eat healthy and uh, everyone really needs to take ownership of their health. Well, go speak to a woman who's working two jobs and has three kids and has no money. You know, I even take issue with the simplistic ideas of food deserts, which are that these are these areas in which people don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so we just need to build more markets in these areas. Okay, so let's say people do get access to these fruits and vegetables. They don't necessarily have time to cook it. The reason why people often buy processed food is because they don't have enough time. So there's all these bigger, bigger issues, right, that we're not looking at. Instead, this is such a hyper-capitalist industry that's constantly telling people they need to do certain things that they can't always do or they need to buy certain things and they don't have the money for it. You know, thinking about what you just said, I think the thing that feels most sort of insidious about the wellness industrial complex is how it is taking us further away from the things that are more often than not free that genuinely make us feel great you know that sense of community that we just spoke about so important for our sense of well-being getting enough fresh air being able to go for a walk and this crucial thing that we have so little time of time so how do you think we can start to really make that important distinction between wellness and the wellness industrial complex? And how do you make that differentiation? And what terminology do you use? Um, I have to say one of the number one questions I get asked is, what is wellness? The fact that there's so much confusion about what this even is, is testament to how out of control this industry has become. Generally, it's considered, you know, the pursuit of well-being outside the realm of medicine or insurance. So that can span everything from nutrition to stress management to fitness. But what's happened is, is that because the term is so vague and general, and there isn't even an agreed upon definition of what well even is, this industry has really been able to shove all these subsectors under this umbrella. So wellness can just as easily mean meditation now as it does activated charcoal toothpaste. Wellness can mean almost anything. And the problem is, is that when something means everything, it starts to mean absolutely nothing. But I will say this, that Wellness is highly individualized. 
I am different than you. We have different mental, biological, spiritual needs. And so the idea that this industry is basically telling people this kind of like blanket statement of what they need to do is really, really problematic. And generally, these things usually involve a price point. And so it's become very, very prescriptive. And it's almost kind of funny because so many of these wellness gurus love to use this trope about how medicine never looks at the root issues. But then they do the exact same thing with wellness. They never look at the root issues. Instead, they're always basically treating the symptoms. And supposedly you do that with like a whole bunch of like skincare masks and bubble baths. It's just absolutely ridiculous, right? Nobody is stressed and sleep deprived because they're not taking enough bubble baths. It's really infantilizing. So in terms of wellness, I mean, it's actually pretty simple. I think we all know what we need to do be healthy, right? We should try to get more movement. We should try to eat more fruits and vegetables, try to get good sleep. The problem is, is that oftentimes we're barred from these things. And so this is where we really need to look to change certain systems. And I'm not saying that's easy, but for example, we need to improve doctor-patient relationships. We need better work-life balance. Uh, Here in the U.S., we need more maternity benefits, childcare policies. We need to make sure that we have enough time to be with our community and to prioritize being with friends. Oftentimes that stuff is dependent on the other things I just mentioned. If we had better childcare benefits and work-life balance, then we would be able to see people. So like that to me is real wellness, fighting for those systemic changes, not buying all this crap. Absolutely, wholeheartedly agree with you. And thank you for for really rounding us up in, in such a brilliant way. There is a lot in wellness that I personally enjoy. And I think it would be foolish of me not to acknowledge that and accept that. And I definitely, you know, if a friend says to me, oh, do you want to try out this new boutique fitness class? I am there in a flash. So for anyone who is listening to this and thinking, oh, you know, there are aspects of things that, you know, Rena would probably consider to be wellness that I really, really love. And I feel like I gain from what would be your advice to them? And are there things in, in your life still that would probably be considered wellness sort of trends that you still incorporate in your in your days? Oh my god, absolutely. First of all, the book is not a takedown of all of wellness. It's a it's a trying to explain why women have been drawn to the wellness industry and how they're preyed upon, but also it's really really targeting the more insidious aspects of it. But of course, I'm not against a yoga class <laughs> or a bubble bath. Um, I'm against the messaging around it that has gotten out of hand. Here in LA, you'll find me buying you know, a bottle of kombucha. I enjoy it. The difference is now, I don't buy all in on its health claims. I just like the taste. You know, I don't think some fitness class is going to magically transform me. I don't think a whole bunch of things that I used to do will really impact me, but I enjoy it. And you can do that. So um, I'm not against this industry at all. And by the way, I think certain things are great. You know, I think it's great that I can go to the airport and there are now salads available. I think it's great that there are now streaming platforms or free classes on YouTube when I'm traveling so that I can get some movement in. There's a lot of great stuff that this industry provides, but there's also some stuff that can be really, really harmful to women. And I have a lot of empathy for women. And, you know, one of, you know, the points of my book is basically how so much of our pursuit of wellness is the pursuit of control. You know, I even had one doctor who told me that so many people who are wellness seekers tend to be uncertainty avoidant. And so I really try to sometimes check myself and ask myself, you know, when I'm buying this thing, is it really about something else? 
And I think if we paused a little bit more before we bought all into something, I think we'd realize a lot about ourselves and what our real needs are. I honestly think this is why you're the perfect person to have written this book, because I definitely felt like I was being guided by a friend and someone who had gone through similar experiences with the wellness industry as I had. So thank you so much, because honestly, I feel like this is the book that I needed to read and I've been waiting for. And it's um, great that you actually brought up our need for control, because that's actually my, what was one of my final questions for you. I love at the end of the book, how um, you offer guides for the perplexed. And the one that really truly spoke to me was how we're often just really, really looking to control everything really, really tightly and how we need to perhaps loosen the grip. Well, everyone's really, really different. So everyone interacts with the wellness industry quite differently. And so people are trying to get different things out of it. So I I don't know if I necessarily say that. I have a bunch of takeaways at the end of the book. So I think some might resonate more with others. Control is definitely one aspect of it. But, you know, some people might be interested in uh, certain products or practices because of other biases. Some people are looking more to connect with nature. And so they might buy into the fallacy that everything that's natural is better, uh, which completely ignores, I don't know, poisonous mushrooms, asbestos, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that is not good for you. And not everything that is natural is better for you. And by the way, the majority of the stuff that's marketed to you is all natural is not natural, right? Clean Beauty uses this all the time. There are no lipstick trees. Supplements do not grow grow off, you know, trees, you know? Like, it's just absolutely ridiculous marketing labels. <laughs> um, so, you know, people have different needs and they're looking for different things. But yeah, a control is one of them. And not just control of the body, which, you know, is really problematic because, all of our bodies are going to break down. And this is why it's so dangerous to put virtue into our pursuit of health because then you start blaming yourself when you get sick or certain things happen to your body. But even, you know, I have a chapter on new, new age spirituality of people who are interested in things like manifestation and astrology and all these different things that essentially try to give some sense of control to people as well. And so it's it's not even just um, looking for products in our body that we want control of. It's other things as well in terms of, you know, for example, manifestation. I spoke to so many people who are interested in manifestation because it was a way they thought to take control of their lives with very, very actionable steps. But I assure everyone there are so many elements out of our control. You just can't plan for everything. Manifestation is actually one of the things that really seems to have blown up over the past few years. And you really do write about it in a very, very balanced way. But I don't think it's any coincidence that the majority of folks who are cashing in on manifestation and earning a lot of money from their programs, etc., are folks who are highly privileged, often very beautiful, and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, manifestation gurus preach to a group of women who already have their basic needs met. You know, I joke that there are no manifestors across borders. I don't see them going to lower income communities. I don't see them going to war zones and telling people, you know, if you put in the hard work and you think the right way, you can get out of this. And so they're really targeting people who just want to get, you know, that little bit ahead, but they basically are already fine. And I thought what was most interesting is that when I went to these manifestation meetups and I listened to a lot of their podcasts and their lectures, the majority of people who were coming to them were talking about work and career. 
And so they were using manifestation to basically get ahead in life. And it's because they were so anxious about the modern economy and their role in it. They felt like what was promised to their parents was no longer a guarantee for them. And so they were looking for a spirituality that was basically about hustling. It was very, very self-oriented. You know, I kind of joke in the book that I have yet to see a lot of these new New Age practices talk about giving back, charity, community. Instead, it's all about like the self and what I can do for myself to get ahead. That's where I think it becomes a little troubling because I think sometimes that can make certain people back at where they started at, which is unwell, right? First of all, a lot of people blame themselves when they can't manifest what they want. They think that they didn't try hard enough. And manifestation is often usually blame-free because if you didn't get what you wanted, it's maybe because you didn't try hard enough or it's because the universe doesn't think you should have it. So they're always off the hook. Um, These are just a couple of examples of, of issues I have with it. But at the same time, I also met a lot of women who got a lot out of it, right? Because it's basically the growth mindset of if you put in the hard work and you think positively, you can get where you want to be. And if you speak to a lot of experts, they'll tell you that that's pretty good advice. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, How would you feel about a quick, quick fire round? Ooh, that makes me nervous, but I'll try my best. Okay, (laughs) quick fire with Rena. Wake up early or have a lion? Oh, I'm very much an early person and uh, I I cannot stay out late. Everyone knows that I'm zero fun at a party and I will always leave by 10 p.m. even on New Year's. Coffee or celery juice? Coffee. I mean, that's that's an easy one. (laughs) Yoga or Pilates? Oh, that's such a tough one. I did Pilates for years and it just, I, I liked it so much. I have to go with Pilates. In the trees or by the sea? By the sea, preferably uh, with a mojito. Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, I'm biased because <laughs> of my own books. So I'm going to say nonfiction for now. Podcasts or TV series? Uh, into podcasts more lately, just because it allows me to do errands and go walking. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. I like the day ahead of me. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Oh, such a routine girl, a creature of habit. And finally, the question I ask all of my guests, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? Oh, that's such a good one. Um, Just more time spent with my loved ones that I won't ever regret that I didn't take more advantage of that. Yeah, I love that. And that's true. That is true health and well-being, isn't it? Spending time with the people we love. Rena, thank you so much. I'm in awe of you and your intelligence and your writing. And I honestly could chat to you for days about this, but I'm so grateful that you wrote this book. I encourage everyone to read it. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. And thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share it with a friend. And as always, links to my guests and their work will be in the show notes. I will see you same time, same place next week. And in the meantime, I hope you have the best possible day. Mm 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.